Well, comrade, what now? Straightforward conversation. Within the panels. I'm your co host, Albert, and with us is our other co host. Yo, what's up, everybody? My name is Drew. How you doing? By the way, Albert, I was wondering, are you trying to sound like you're whispering secrets into our listeners' ears? Why do you sound so secretive and furtive tonight? I don't know. I was just trying to do a professional radio voice. Uh, I guess you could have called that like my Orson Welles or something. Oh, okay. It's the okay. War of the Worlds. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's that's what happens when you run out of gimmicks. I mean, I think last time we talked about doing various actors that we could try. I <laughs> I've yet to pull that off. I, I I think I have two, maybe three personations I can do tops. So you know, I'm really I'm really hoarding those and saving those for you know um for maximum effect like if if uh terrorists held our family hostage and they need me to do like an impersonation of someone then i could just like whip one out yeah take them all by surprise yeah exactly you know what you actually have double the amount of impersonation that you think you do because you could always do the standard actor impersonation and then you can do a twist where you do that impersonation in your 1920s chicago gangster voice i mean sure sure you just got I to mean, channel, at that point you got to channel that actor acting in a 1920s chicago gangster film uh i don't even know if they would sound like that actor anymore at that point, I think I'm pretty sure at that point they'd just be, instead of doing Owen Wilson, I'd just be doing, you know, I'd just be doing uh, a 1920s Chicago gangster <laughs> as opposed to Owen Wilson doing a 1920s Chicago gangster. I've got faith in your acting abilities. Didn't you take a drama class mm-hmm. back in high school? I did. You never took drama in high school? Uh, I can't remember if I did. I might have taken a drama class, but I don't think I ever actually acted. I definitely didn't act in any dramas in high school. I see. I see. Did, well, now, okay, this is kind of a, we've opened a can of worms of sorts, because now I'm just fascinated by your high school life. But, I mean, did you ever do anything like school plays or anything like that? Oh, I think maybe a little bit in middle school, although the the bit parts, I wouldn't really consider that any kind of acting. I think I see. in terms of you the like drama classes. Or a shrub or something? Yeah, or a tree. <laughs> or a tree or a rock. <laughs> I was pretty good at standing off to the side, being part of the background where nobody would really pay any attention to me. Yeah, I was good at that too. In fact, I did that for 40 years. Yeah. Some, some people we are, might say, I'm still doing that, 
<laughs> we are truly method actors when it comes to being yeah. part of the background. <laughs> exactly. We have mastered that. Exactly. <laughs> we have mastered being nothing in life. <laughs> uh, Hang on. Hey, Albert, Daniel Day Lewis, eat your heart out. Give me a few minutes. I, I need to go stick my head in a blender after you said that. I'll be back. <laughs> uh. All right. And scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I did a little bit of theater stuff in high school and middle school, if only because I think, again, because I was so young and impressionable, so much of my life being built around TV, I thought that doing theater at my school would have been like doing theater on like Full House or something. So I, I always expected the production values to be like, you know, great. But then I never realized until much later in life that, oh yeah, whenever they had sitcoms and they did like uh, school plays and stuff, their stuff looked way better because I'm sure it took a lot more money than whatever we had at our school. So, you know, all of our productions were generally crappier. <laughs> yeah. And for a TV production, I'm pretty sure they have adults building the sets and, Exactly. The exactly. They had professionals. Yeah. You know, even even if they tried to give it a look that was kind of amateurish, it was done on purpose. And even for amateurish, it was good, right? It was like the best version uh, that they could possibly produce that would still communicate the amateurishness of it. Yeah. And sometimes I feel like people who are actually pretty talented or professional craftsmen when they're trying to intentionally create something that looks a little more amateurish, it's kind of funny looking because they can't quite do it because they're just too good. It makes they're me think good. of, yeah, it makes me think of comics when a story has a character who's not very good at drawing, draw something. So you see the artist, you know, depict that. And you get this phenomenon where the character in the comic is supposed to be a bad artist and then you you're looking at that character's artwork idea of just bad art think, yeah it doesn't really <laughs> look so that great. bad yeah yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> well anyways that was great we killed a couple of minutes with that <laughs> <laughs> i hope you enjoyed that listeners <laughs> see if we had a sponsor for this episode we could have filled that time with an advertisement well, luckily for you, this week, we do have a sponsor. Billy, who's our sponsor? What do we got? That's right. We've got an intern, too, because, you know, he's not allowed to have any lines because once we once you can hear him, we have to pay him. But, yeah. Let's see. All right. This week, our sponsor is the Black Plague. Tired of looking for expensive gifts? Tired of just buying jewelry and cars and and tech for your loved ones this year, how about you get them the Black Plague? Wait, <laughs> you're saying that like the Black Plague is a sentient entity that commissioned us to talk them on our podcast? Absolutely. 
I'm no longer being sponsored by uh, terrorist organizations and uh, white nationalists. We're also being sponsored by uh, concepts. Okay. Nice. <laughs> yeah. We see that is how that is how desperate we are for sponsors. We will take anything. <laughs> Next week's episode is going to be sponsored by loneliness. Isn't that every episode so far? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, this week, let's tell the good people what we're discussing. Drew? All right. In today's episode, we are going to be discussing Decorum by Jonathan Hickman and Mike Huddleston. So here are the credits. It's written by Hickman. The art is by Huddleston. Decorum is lettered by our boy Russ Wooten. Woo! Woo woo! <laughs> <laughs> I was aiming for that. And designed by Sasha E. Head. So it's an eight issue miniseries published by Image Comics. The first issue came out in March of 2020. The eighth issue came out in November of 2021. Uh, there were some gaps in between some of the issues. I think the biggest gap was an eight-month delay between issues seven and eight. The hardcover collection, which we both own, came out in April of 2022. But yeah, this is, I think this is the first time on our podcast where Devoting an entire episode solely to a Jonathan Hickman comic. Yeah, we discussed it outside the episode. We we tried our best to do a deep dive into our episodes list and, you know, let this be a testament to our dedication. But we have done so many episodes at this point that it was quite a task. And, you know, to the best of our ability and to the best of our knowledge, I believe that this I, I would also happen to agree that uh, this is probably the first episode that we've done that's purely dedicated to just a Jonathan Hickman comic. Yeah, way, way back in the Halcyon days of 2017, when we first launched our podcast, we did talk about his Avengers and New Avengers run in our very first episode. I'm kind of embarrassed to go back and listen to it, though. That was a different time. That was before we became pros. That was before the Black Plague was sponsoring us. Yeah. <laughs> you should have seen the kind of sponsors we were getting then. <laughs> uh, but anyways, yeah, um, yeah uh, we, we definitely talk about Jonathan Hickman a lot, and he's someone that we have a lot of appreciation for. Uh, so mm -hmm. it's certainly not due to any lack of, or or it's not due to any sort of disrespect or anything like that. But it's pretty sure it's just happenstance that has just put us in this position where, yeah, we just never really, really got a chance to talk to him until uh, talk about him until now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you have any yeah. favorite Hickman comics? Or actually, let me start off with asking you, 
what your first Hickman comic was. How'd you discover his work? Uh, I think we talked about this quite a bit, but I would say that my first real introduction to Jonathan Hickman was his Avengers run when he did Avengers World. I think, mm. okay, I think prior to that, I was vaguely aware of him, if only because I remember that you were really into, you were really, I remember there was this one store at the Metreon called Things from Another World, and there was a yeah. there called, uh, well, what was happening was they were closing down at the time, and you know, whenever a store goes down, me and Drew, we go ham. We just, we got to get our sales, right? So We swoop in like vultures, although we don't take enjoyment from it because we'd rather the store survive to feed us another day. But if it is going to die, then we might as well take what we can. Exactly. We're not vultures, we're parasites. So we want to make sure that they're around forever so that we can continue (laughs) to feed off them. Yeah, exactly. Vultures, they leave you for dead. Yeah, yeah. Good point. Very good distinction to make. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I, I've often thought of myself as a tick. Um, <laughs> but anyways, yeah, so when the store was closing down, I remember that they had a comic there called, I believe it was called The Nightly News. Yeah. Yeah. And I I had no idea who Jonathan Hickman was at the time. Man, this is, this is an old memory, though, because I haven't thought of things from another world in, like, ages. That was the name of the store, right? Yeah, that was the name. It it yeah. still exists on the internet. I guess it was a chain. Somehow it's associated with Dark Horse Comics, I think. I, I can't remember how they're related. I want to say like the, the founder of Dark Horse Comics founded that comic shop as well, somewhere in Portland, and it just kind of expanded along the West Coast, maybe. I think that's mm-hmm. the story, but I'm not, I haven't done any research. Yeah. I mean, in a period where we haven't seen too many comic book stores and new comic book stores when metreon opened and there was news that you know there was going to be a comic book store in there that was pretty exciting yeah and uh yeah but unfortunately it didn't make it like a lot of businesses in the metreon there's a bunch of junk there now which is kind of sad because i'd way rather have a comic book store there than like a claw machine shop or something but (laughs) yeah anyways yeah um yeah, so I the the one memory that I have of Jonathan Hickman is there was this book that Drew wanted to buy and he was constantly bringing it up and at the time, you know, none of us were rich, but we were we were trying to get the best deals w- that we could and there was just a whole bunch of other stuff there to get and you know, I talked to Drew out of getting the nightly news because I didn't recognize Jonathan Hickman and there was just all this other stuff that we could get so i was just like yeah just just leave that one behind and years later uh the running gag was he always kind of blamed me for not picking it up when he had the chance and to this day i still do not have a copy of the nightly news yeah and it's all your fault (laughs) (laughs) how could Uh, you albert i thought you were my friend (laughs) you were supposed to save the jedi (laughs) You were supposed to bring balance to the force. <laughs> but anyways, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I didn't know who Jonathan Hickman was at the time, but I I just knew of him because 
Drew would constantly joke about the fact that he never got this one comic by him. But then the first comic that I actually did write read from him was that Avengers, uh, the Avengers comic that he did um, at at Marvel uh, that we've discussed on this episode. And that, yeah, that first story arc just blew me away from the very start of it. It was mm-hmm. the sort of thing where I was just like, where has this dude been my whole life? You know? <laughs> Man, <laughs> if only... You had talked me into buying the nightly news back then. <laughs> you could be living in a whole different world today. <laughs> I mean, you could still definitely get it now. Well, yeah. <laughs> I could. It's but... just one of those things, man, where it's like <laughs> I put it off in the moment when I found it for cheap and I haven't yeah. really come across a cheap copy of it and then yeah, the it's the ravages of time, dude. It eats at us all. Well, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this, because I'm curious. Even though you haven't owned it, have you actually ever read it? I've only read the first issue. One time I found one of those $1 first issues that Image sometimes does. And I think they... Mm-hmm. I want to say they did one for the nightly news. I could be misremembering. It's quite possible I simply found the first issue in a quarter bin during another sale but I didn't find anything else. So right. I, I have read the first issue of it. I've never been able to find the rest of it. So I think I just mm. ended up giving that first issue away to somebody else. I see. I see. Yeah. I think now that you mention it, I feel like you might've given it to Zach, but I'm pretty sure I did. Cause he's a Hickman fan too. Yeah. Did you ever check to see if it was at the library? No, I haven't actually checked to see if it, the library has it. I feel like it probably should be at the library. I mean, it's not a book yeah. that I I think will be hard to find or anything. It's not like crazy out of print. At least yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like I still see it at stores. If anything, because it's Hickman, it should be more accessible available now than before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's he's kind of uh the, the golden child of comics. Yeah. And I think during that era, like around the mid-2000s or the late 2000s, that was when he was still kind of coming up into the industry. So uh, he had other creator-owned image books around that time also. I think Nightly News was his first one. But he also had stuff like Pax Romana, Transhuman, Red Mass for Mars, The Red Wing. Mm -hmm. Those books I I did end up reading. It's just I haven't read the nightly news because of what you did to me. <laughs> yeah, it's far more it's far more valuable for you to hold on to that memory than it is to actually satisfy yourself by reading it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like Pax Romana, especially because that was something that he wrote and drew himself. I think a lot of people who are only casually familiar with Hickman for his uh, Marvel stuff, probably don't realize he started off as a writer and an artist. I mean, he's I think he's definitely a better writer than he is an artist. But his artwork has a very specific design sense, too. Because when you look at the comics that other people have drawn for his scripts, even those are immaculately designed like one of the things he's always been known for is those data pages, pages where he inserts 
different bits of te text and lore to, you know, just for the reader to consume. So it's not necessarily uh, in comic book form, but it just distinct distinguishes his work so specifically that I think he's known for it. But when you look at his earlier comics like Nightly News and Pax Romana, even the way that those pages are drawn and designed, it, you can tell that, or at least it seems like he has a background in graphic design or some kind of visual oh, yeah, arts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All of the comics that he's ever done have, I mean, they've. there's always been some element of it where the graphic portion of it really has a lot of care and attention applied to it so you you definitely know like yeah I, I absolutely believe that he has some sort of background in graphic design and is just masterful at applying that uh his understanding of how um of how visuals are consumed by readers and viewers to like just great effect mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, I'm looking at his Wikipedia entry right now, and according to Wikipedia, he earned a degree in architecture, and then before oh. he broke into comics, he worked in the fields of web and CD-ROM development and then advertising. So all of those things kind of track with me because that's the kind of stuff that I could easily imagine transitioning him to the style of art that he did draw when... He was drawing more comics himself. Yeah, I, I it definitely does feel like there's a aspect of the comics that he produces where special attention is given to the special attention is given to it so that it almost feels like there's a pamphlet aspect to it, right? Where the introductory portions of the stories are almost designed in a way that in the same way that pamphlets are designed that so that it feeds you the necessary amount of information in a appropriate portion so that you can v quickly and easily visually understand whatever it is he's trying to communicate with you. Mm -hmm. And even in the certain instances where, um, there's a lot of design elements on the page, even if you don't fully understand everything because there's a particular lore to it, you there's still there's still a method to that madness where looking by looking at it, you can still over time kind you can still decipher it like a puzzle, you know? Mm, yeah. That's true. Yeah. But that being said, what now I'm kind of curious uh, as to what your yeah I mean I'm sure we've talked about this but what's you what's your relationship with Hickman been you know your exposure and whatnot? Well, seeing that nightly news that one time at the store that was how I heard of him <laughs> <laughs> that was definitely <laughs> the thing that stood out because even though I didn't know who he was at the time. I think it just looks so different from a lot of the other stuff that I was intrigued yeah. by it. And I was also more into 
indie comics and, and things like that. And his art in Nightly News reminded me of some of the indie comics I've read where, you know, the creator isn't necessarily the best artist in terms of just like straight up drawing skills, but still knows how to use what he can do to the best of his abilities to tell a story. So it it looked like just from flipping through that book, it looked like he was somebody who had a good understanding of storytelling and comics and he had something to say. But I think the first Hickman comic that I actually read, it it was either Secret Warriors or his Dark Ray and Fantastic Four. Because both of those kind of spun out of Secret Invasion at Marvel. He did the Those Secret his Warriors. Early, his early Marvel stuff. Yeah, his very early Marvel stuff. Because Secret Warriors, the first arc, he co-wrote it with Bendis, actually. So it wasn't until after the first arc that he had sole credit as writer. But I think it's just a case of Bendis being one of those guys who kind of wanted to nurture more independent talent at Marvel. So he kind of brought him in and, you know, the dude proved that he could do it. And yeah, like the rest is history, you know, his fantastic four struck, his fantastic four run was great. I didn't, read it at the time i read the first dark rain story but then when he began writing the ongoing series it wasn't something that i was buying on a monthly basis so i kind of missed out and then you know sometimes you just fall behind on trades and you don't really want to catch up because it'll just cost too much money to to buy all the paperbacks and then you tell yourself hey maybe one day they'll do a a really big uh, hardcover or something, and you hold out for that, but uh, it doesn't come for a really long time. Yeah. Although, yeah. Nowadays, there actually are omnibuses that collect his Fantastic Four run and an omnibus for Secret Warriors. At the time, I think Fantastic Four was coming out in those premiere edition hardcovers and then normal trade paperbacks. Yeah. I do have all those all of his Fantastic Four premiere edition hardcovers. I think I ended up buying those from like in stock one year for either 70 or 80% off when they still used to have those sales. Not in stock. Um, what, what was it that we used to do? Might have been things from another world, actually. Yeah, the, TFAW.com. The TFAW, yeah. So that might have been the last thing I remember, the last thing that I ever got from them the last time that they ever did that kind of a sale yeah they don't do those sales anymore they used to have those black friday sales and cyber monday sales that were killer those were fantastic but yeah alas alas alack mm-hmm. no I, I was gonna say it's interesting that you bring up michael brian michael bendis because when you were talking about how jonathan hickman had that indie style the first thing that i thought of was something like brian michael bendis and his early indie stuff when he was doing like goldfish and torso yeah because that had that very unique sort of indie touch and look to it as well yeah definitely i think there are similarities there you know they're both guys that started off drawing and writing their own stories but 
I think it soon became clear to them that they probably liked writing more than the actual drawing. So they were able to become known as primarily writers in comics. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I still think that both of them had pretty solid art, at least from a comic book perspective. Maybe if you're just looking at a splash page or something, you might not be super impressed. But I think from a reading perspective, their artwork got the job done pretty effectively yeah yeah what were we gonna say i was just gonna say that i did end up getting all that fantastic four eventually it just took me a lot longer because i think maybe like five or six years ago we were at a quarter bin comic book sale (laughs) put on by the friends of the sf public library and i found a bunch of the issues from the run Probably like a solid 90% of the issues for a quarter. So I ended up buying those. And then it took maybe another year or two to find the ones I was missing before I finally Mm -hmm. completed the set. And that was one of the things I read relatively early during the pandemic, during that period when comic book shops were closed. And I just had a pile of stuff I was sitting on that I hadn't read. So I read his Fantastic Four and I absolutely adored it. Yeah, yeah. Relatively speaking, in terms of stuff that we find in quarter bins, that was actually one of the shorter ones. Well, maybe not the shortest one, but, you know, there's stuff on our list that we're still looking for years later. (laughs) Yeah, it didn't take as long to complete that as it could have, considering how many issues it actually was. Right. But I'm glad that you eventually sorted it out got what you needed from it and was able to read it and you know educate yourself on on hickman and his fantastic four yeah that's definitely my favorite fantastic four run i love that run man yeah let's talk about huddleston a little bit so well i'll I'll start with me because i think I, i have far less to say i'm I'll admit that I'm not familiar with him at all. This is probably the first thing I've ever read that he's done. So mm. I don't I don't really have much to say except, you know, just based on what I've observed in this comic, I can honestly say that he's got a really cool visual style. It's definitely very graphic graphic design oriented. So yeah. there's certainly yeah. a lot of stylic stylistic flourishes to it. Um, it's pretty creative in terms of how it presents things to us, the viewer, uh, not so much in a straightforward, um, comic storytelling experience that we've, we're like so accustomed to in other comics, right? Where you have your standard panel by panel storytelling. In, in fact, I might even say that it's pretty free flowing how they tell the story in decorum. It's I, I don't, I don't remember too many scenes where there were a whole lot where they were like, well, no, I'm looking through it. I guess they do do a lot of panel work, but it's still, in my opinion, very, very free flowing. He draws in a variety of styles. That's true too. I think that's it, the big thing. It, it really distinguishes his work and it seems like there are even pages where he combines different styles together. Mm. Um, 
and it, it's got a unique rhythm to it because at some points it just kind of feels a little bit haphazard like why did he choose to draw this page in this style and the previous page was in another style like i'm not i think i'd have to really like sit down and and think about that it feels like it's more improvisational and just like you were saying free flow and just what he what he was feeling man what he was vibing with on the page he just like splashed it yeah. down and and you know there's some pages that are drawn in kind of a sketchier style there's some pages that kind of bring to mind old kirby comics with the complete with the kirby crackle and like the weird cosmic stuff where you're just looking at yeah. kind of amorphous shapes and uh yeah it's almost like a collage this, yeah i was gonna say i'm looking at some of the pages right here and some of it kind of reminds me of like christian ward where it's just really crazy colors and a lot of everything is kind of I don't really know how else to describe it, but blurpy, <laughs> you know, or blobby. Yeah, yeah. But he must have done really a lot cool of like digital stuff with it. I don't really know all of his processes, but we ain't yeah. smart enough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it, it's super fascinating because there's like a lot of bits of it where I think the backgrounds are pretty obviously done on a computer somehow, but then like the way he draws his figures they still look really hand drawn and they still look really yeah. uh, personal but then there are other points where sometimes his figures they 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 look just as digital as the backgrounds themselves too so it's really yeah. unusual it's it's pretty fun to look at i think the artwork is it's probably the star of the show for me yeah yeah like i'm looking at these pages right here i mean we're still talking about him as an artist, but I I, I just want to mention it because it's on my brain right now. But on page 67, I'm looking at it. I think it's 67. I'm looking at the digital copy. And like that stuff just looks like jock, you know? Mm. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know if uh, you, you're all familiar with the artist jock, but he he's another really talented artist artist out in the comics field who does a lot of oh, man i wish i was smarter i had better words but <laughs> yeah he 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 works a lot in shading and sketches and and figures right where you're not necessarily getting the clearest image of what it is you're looking at but it's still done in such a masterful way that it's just really impressive to look at you know it's it's really mm -hmm. cool to look at i mm -hmm. and that's that's the only way that i can really describe it it's very like texture heavy is how i i would describe his art and yeah it just really feels like uh huddleston's just channeling a bunch of the greats here yeah i remember reading some Have of you... his earlier work because he did a comic for Top Shelf. It was written by Robert Venditti. It was called The Homeland Directive. I don't really remember the story because this was like over 10 years ago since I read it. I do remember enjoying it. So if I ever come across a cheap copy of it, I'd probably pick it up. But yeah, his artwork 
definitely stood out even back then. I think his art initially kind of reminded me of somebody like a Ben Templesmith, maybe even a little bit of Sienkiewicz, but like a more modern computer aided one. Um, but yeah, he's, he's actually been around for quite some time because according to his credits, he broke in back in the mid nineties with doing some work at DC. Notably, he did six issues of the Marv Wolfman Deathstroke towards the end of that run. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> kind of surprising, huh? I thought I had something to I thought I had something more to say. I I really didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I like bet those, those comics, were some really good looking Deathstroke comics. <laughs> if we ever come across those in a quarter bin, those would be worth picking up. I don't really Absolutely. I haven't really looked at what his art was like back in that era of his career, but I imagine it was pretty different from how he draws now. Yeah. From an educational perspective, it'd be worth picking those up just so that you can, you know, learn about how his style has evolved over time. Yeah, yeah. And I think after he was working at DC a bit back then, he did an Oni comic in the early 2000s, or maybe it was really late 90s. It was called The Coffin, written by Phil Hester. And then from that point, he kind of bounced around a little bit, doing work for various companies. Just, you know, nothing super long form that I'm aware of, but he did uh, do quite a bit. And then right around 2011, 2012-ish, he drew a comic written by Joe Casey called Butcher Baker, Righteous Maker. And that was the thing that I think really put him on the map for me because I'm such a big Joe Casey fan, you know? I'm pretty sure I had read the Homeland Directive first, and I enjoyed that for what it was, and I enjoyed his artwork. But pairing him up with one of my favorite writers in Joe Casey, doing something that was kind of a riff on what Casey had done with Ash Wood on Automatic Kafka. Yeah, I was all about Butcher Baker, man. That was a really great comic, something that I flip through all the time just to look at the pictures. But one of these days, I'll have to reread it. I think it's mm. just, uh, yeah, definitely on the higher end in terms of Joe Casey comics for me. And Mike Huddleston drew that one. And it was a pretty amazing thing to look at. But the thing is, I noticed that uh, he and Joe Casey, I think they had some kind of falling out at the end of Butcher Baker. Because, yeah, from what I remember, uh, I, and I, I don't know if they've patched things up or if they still talk professionally or anything but i just remember that when butcher baker was coming out i forget how many issues it was it was either eight or nine i think but there was a really big gap between the second to last issue and the final issue yeah it was eight issues and just a big gap between seven and eight and i think in an interview somebody asked casey what was going on and I think Casey basically just said that 
uh, Huddleston was kind of busy because he overcommitted himself to doing other work. And he, you know, he would get to the last issue when he was able to. But I, I think that uh, Huddleston kind of took that personally. I mean, I don't really know if it was meant as a as an insult towards him or anything, but I think he felt disrespected by something like that. And yeah, they haven't. I remember there was like a kerfluffle that kind of blew up online when that happened. Oof. And if you notice, man, if you notice the little creator bio at the at the back of the book in Decorum, when when you get a couple words on each of the creators and some of the work that they've done, you notice that Mike Huddleston did not list Butcher Baker as one of his credits when it's probably like his best work up to this point. <laughs> Ooh. Yikes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, comics is a tough industry and people don't always get along and I'm sure there's a whole ton of stories. We all assume that we're all, everyone's just, you know, in it for the comics, just doing it for the love, but there's definitely a lot of different personalities out there and it doesn't always work out. It's kind of sad when it doesn't, you know? Yeah. And I mean, from what I remember too, I think the reason why Huddleston had been doing other work towards the end of Butcher Baker was because he just needed to pay his bills, you know? Yeah. So it was just a matter of him doing something where he needed to take care of himself because I don't think Butcher Baker was lighting the world on fire with sales. Unfortunately not. Yeah. 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 Hmm. But anyway, after... That I'm not really I'm not out to dredge up the past or pick at old wounds or anything, but uh, that was just something I remembered about Butcher Baker and Huddleston and Casey. But anyway, after all that, he Huddleston had a long run drawing the Strain comics. Remember the Strain? It was a Guillermo del Toro book based on a TV show. I think it was based on a novel, or was there a TV show? Okay. Because from what I remember, uh, it's about Guillermo vampires, del Toro. Right? Yeah, Guillermo del Toro wrote a novel about vampires called The Strain, or maybe it was. It's like I think it was a trilogy. Apocalyptic vampires or something like that. <laughs> I have no idea. All I know was that it had vampires, and I wasn't too interested. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, Mike Huddleston drew those, and that was a pretty substantial piece of work too. I think that was like thirty-something issues. At Dark Horse. Mm. Mm. Never read them, though. Because they were about vampires. (laughs) (laughs) I think part of it is because it's a a vampire story. Secondly, it's uh, an adaptation of something that I wasn't familiar with. So that's an even harder sell for me. Yeah. and I don't necessarily have anything against Del Toro. I don't feel super strongly about him either one way or the other, but I think because I didn't know anything about the strain, I was just, it was just something that I continually let fly under my radar. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm with you on that. The, the thing about adaptation comics is as much as it's a gateway for people to get into comics, people who aren't necessarily 
familiar with comics or people who wouldn't normally be into comics. Uh, it's also a gate, a a a gate that acts as a hindrance for people who don't necessarily follow Guillermo del Toro or that particular property, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I'm with that. There, you know, as much as it brings um, fans of those people in, it it acts just as much to keep me out, unless it's something I'm already into. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, as far as I know, Huddleston is currently working on Three Worlds, Three Moons with Hickman and Mike Del Mundo and a few other creators who are involved in that endeavor. But I don't really know too much about it as I'm not on their sub stack. Right. Right. All right. Hmm. Well, I guess we can go into decorum a little bit now. Uh, I can give a brief description. I was trying to look for the description that the book gives, but it doesn't really give much. Because, I mean, I think Hickman is a pretty good salesperson, so I'm I'm sure that he knows that less is more in this case, because the description that they do provide doesn't really give you too much, but I guess it gives you just enough to, you know, to hop on. If, if all you need to know is that Hickman wrote it, and all you need are the visuals to draw you in then there we go. Yeah, um, I mean, Hickman's name is the selling point, I think. He was... Exactly, at this, exactly. At the, at the time that Decorum was released, um, Hickman was a, a really big name. the world. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. All yeah. thanks to his Marvel stuff. Yeah. Plus, in the hardcover edition, there isn't any back cover co- copy at all. There's no blurb whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. I was searching for it and I was like, man, uh, so I'll just read what they put down and then I'll try my best to fill it in with what I can, uh, you know, using my own words. <laughs> there are many assassins in the known universe. This is the story of the most well-mannered one. Manners are a sensitive awareness of the feelings of others. If you have that awareness, you have good manners, no matter what knife you use. Yeah, that's that's all they really give you. Hmm. Um, the various different uh, versions of it all really just focus on the fact that this is the most well-mannered assassin in the universe. Um, yeah, uh, to the best of my ability, it's the story of a young girl who ends up accidentally hitching up with a master assassin and that assassin decides to train her in the ways of assassinry. Assassinry. (laughs) You like that? (laughs) And and it just kind of grows exponentially from there, where from her uh, training at this special assassin monastery, um, she ends up going on the adventure of a lifetime as she involves herself with a cosmic cult and the 
you know, space god that they worship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How's that for a, a synopsis? Am I missing anything big without spoiling anything? No, I think that's a suitable synopsis for anyone who hasn't read it and is curious to get a taste of what decorum is all about. Yeah, yeah. So let's uh let's talk about it a little bit. I mean, I think based on what we've said so far, um, people have a general idea of what our impression of it is. But in in no uncertain terms, let's give the people, you know, just what our thoughts are in brief. So what'd you think, Drew? I think I appreciated it and respected it more than I loved it from an emotional standpoint, if that makes sense. Mm. I think it's a really impressive piece of work and I did like it. I definitely like it. I think compared to some of the other Hickman comics I've read, I probably don't love it to that extent yet. Mm-hmm. It might be yeah. something I need to reread. And the reason why I would say that I appreciated it more than I loved it emotionally is probably because for me, I think it just started off a little bit kind of slow. Or not necessarily slow. I think I would say it starts off... Uh, kind of in an overwhelming way where there's a lot of information being presented and it's not necessarily all things that are immediately explained to the reader. You just kind of have to put your trust in the creators and keep rolling with it. And it wasn't until a few chapters into the book when it sort of narrows down the world building and focuses in on the story of Niha and is that how you pronounce her name? I'm just going to call her Niha. Hopefully that's not too far off the mark. But yeah, it's when it becomes the story of Niha and Imogen in the assassin school, I think that's when it became easier for me to follow the story. And after that, yeah. I was like engrossed and I pretty much like blasted through the last, I don't know, six eighths of the book or so. But mm-hmm. those... uh opening few chapters i think i was my mind was just swimming in wondering what i was reading i didn't even know what the story was really about until i got like way deeper in yeah it gets it starts off pretty metaphysical and there's a lot of really grand imagery of just things images that you're not really entirely sure of what you're looking at and you know flowery language where you're trying to really ponder what 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 Hickman as a writer is trying to establish here, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm with you on that. Like I, I I think this is telling of how I read comics, but you know, and, and this might not be the best admission for someone who does a comic uh, a podcast about reading comics, but <laughs> I, I read for volume as opposed to like really like process it. And I think I figure that the way that I am is if I'm engrossed in what I'm reading, I will eventually via osmosis be able to glean from it the observations that I need to get. 
But if I can't do that in my first try, I, I generally just pound my way through it like a bull in a china shop. You know, I just read it just to read it. Yeah, and just to let your I, eyes run over every word in the text. Exactly, exactly. And I think my hope is maybe eventually as I'm processing it in my subconscious, I'll be able to decipher what is going on, right? So yeah, there's yeah. these two stories that are going on. There's the, the this the whole thing with this space cult and this god that they're trying to worship. And I'm still not entirely sure what they are. I think they're they're a space cult of robots or something. Yeah, it's like yeah. the single the technological singularity. Yeah, see that's all that's just you you might as well have been growling at me. Those are I, I sure <laughs> me not smart <laughs> me not smart enough <laughs> it's something that i've read about in other science fiction comics or science fiction stories before and i, I would even yeah. say pikmin himself kind of goes back to this idea of not just space gods but also like the singularity in general because i think that's one of the things in a hypothetical future in House of X, Powers of Ten. It's his one of his pet concepts. I think so. I think so. I mean, it's a pretty, yeah. it's a pretty big science fiction concept in general. Maybe, maybe it can even be argued it's not necessarily science fiction. Maybe it, it's something that because I think like a lot of real thinkers and like mathematicians or something like actually think that the world could someday conceivably reach that point in in the future, depending on how uh, quickly technology continues to progress. Mm. You know, with things like artificial super intelligence, uh, learning, machines learning how to iterate and reiterate and improve upon their own processes so that they can continue to advance and make themselves better. Like hypothetically, I guess the idea is is that these machines will continue to make themselves more and more efficient to the point where at some at some point, uh, I guess humans will not really be necessary. So, like that's I guess that's the the yeah. I'm sure there's a lot yeah. more. Um, that someone who's more properly versed in science can explain, but I think yeah, as uh, yeah. as somebody who was just a layman in science, I mean, yeah. I was an English major because I didn't know math, you know, <laughs> so yeah. I can't explain it. And I just my... know that I don't want a machine-ruled future to take over the Earth. Exactly. The extent of my knowledge of computers is that I know that I can use it to look at boobs. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's a pretty critical <laughs> function of technology, so as long as it still going. allows us to do that, I suppose we'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've made it to where I am in life because of that. <laughs> uh, but the second those boobs start trying to take over the world, no thanks. That's yeah. when we got Judgment Day, baby. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, but I was I was far more lost trying to 
follow that story. And I think a big part of it is also a lot of, it's just part of Hickman's world building, right? Because he, he gives the, this species, this, this singularity, an entire culture of its own, an entire lexicon, a, a, a whole world that they inhabit. And he doesn't necessarily give you everything to understand it. It, it takes a little bit of time for you to sit there and kind of parcel it out in order to make sense of it. And, and in some cases, maybe you might even go as far as to say that maybe it's not meant to be a thing that we're supposed to make sense of because that's what makes it alien, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. It, it, it could be a concept that is so far beyond us that we're meant to not fully understand it. So, yeah, so, uh, those first couple of chapters, I'd say I'm with you on this in that I, I recognize the book as visually being something very impressive to look at and probably academically something that's interesting to examine. But um, in terms of like personal entertainment value, I, 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 I don't think I really got that out of the book um you were not entertained i I mean i was probably more engulfed in it than i was entertained by it (laughs) okay yeah but the other thing that i'd probably say that hickman is known for is from the comics of his that i've read the things that i've read by him he does a lot of great work with dialogue so when he wants to write something epic something that really makes you feel the drama of a scene he's fully capable of doing those kinds of comics Mm -hmm. and i don't really think i got too much of that in this particular book you know so there was I, I there's like like there isn't like a line or a scene that I can really quote from this book from memory where I'm like, man, that was such a cool, such a badass moment or whatever. Um, but yeah. Uh, otherwise, I, I'd say that I'm, I'm probably in line with you in terms of my appreciation, it, my my feelings towards this book being more appreciative than, uh, you know, loving it or enjoying it. Yeah, I think it's something that I would need to reread in order to appreciate it and like it even more. Because I th- I do think that so much of the early portion of the comic spends a great deal of time with world building and laying down information about the world that we're reading about. It's like the first time you're reading it, it kind of doesn't mean too much because you're not even sure like what thread to follow and what's important or not. Yeah. But now that it's just a bunch of jargon. (laughs) Yeah. But now that we are familiar with the story, with the overall arc of the plot, I think it'll make more sense when we read it again from the beginning. I think that'll be a big benefit to it. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
it's it's not a simple book I'll, I'll give it that it's there's certainly a lot going on here i do remember even just a bit earlier today you asking me about this book and asking me about the themes that were going on and uh if i, if I had noticed any themes or uh subjects that i could glean from this book and yeah, if I had to be honest, my first impression of it off the top of my head was just, it just reminded me of My Fair Lady or something, right? Where uh -huh. this upper class lady, it's it's My Fair Lady with aliens and space assassins. Um, and, and maybe that's oversimplifying it and being way too dumb about it. But yeah, it just felt like it was a story about, you know, this young woman who is of a lower class who ends up teaming up with this high class um upper society assassin who takes her under her wing and essentially tells her i can take this young girl and train her in the ways of assassinry yeah i haven't read my fair lady or watched it so i'd I can't really say uh, I remember much of anything about it, but if it makes you feel any better, I haven't read or watched it either. So this is just you know <laughs> my cursory knowledge of the of the movie <laughs> based on uh, pop culture osmosis. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. 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 <laughs> so I could be completely wrong for all I know. My it might it might be nothing like my fairly well. <laughs> it's obviously <laughs> not really anything like my fair lady but it could be even less than my fair lady than i even initially thought <laughs> <laughs> all right all right so let's go into it you ready to dive into it drew i think so i'm gonna have to follow your lead because i think this was a story <laughs> like you're saying like I, I was also trying to think about the various themes and other ideas or bits of subtext within the story. And I think the biggest thing that I got from it probably was just the world building, like the idea mm -hmm. that they've created this entire setup and established these characters and relationships. And, you know, it's a lot of potential for future storytelling. And I think uh, the ending of this volume does imply that there will be more. I don't know when or if that will actually happen, but on some level, it kind of feels like the story's not fully, or if it kind of feels like they're not fully done with this world, you know, they're not fully done with the world of decorum. There's going to be something more that they can do with yeah. all of the stuff that they've created here so that, mm -hmm. you know, there will be, payoff to a lot of the things that they've created all the information that they drop the various data pages the histories the lore all of the various maps of the galaxy things like that it's almost like mm. too much information is given to us in decorum and yeah i think that's why there are times when i didn't really know what to make of it because i wasn't sure what was relevant and what was just kind of side dressing to you know create 
an immersive world to draw me in as a reader. Yeah, yeah. I think I think you're right when you say that there's just so much stuff here that I don't know about you, but I was somewhat overwhelmed by all of it to the point where I don't know that I really retained much in in terms of the actual world that they've built, but mm-hmm. I, I can certainly talk about it in terms of the broader plot points of things that were happening. Um, I will say that it wasn't until you hit me with that question that I I was really put in a place where I had to really think about why what 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 was the subtext of all this, right? What is this comic about? And I even went so far as to think about it in terms of what does, why is it called decorum? What what does it mean, right? Mm -hmm. And I think if you look at the way that the story is structured, and, and this isn't really a fully formed thought in my brain as of yet, so I'll, I'll try my best to produce it in a way that's cohesive, as cohesive as I can make it. But a lot of this story is about the idea of decorum and what it means to rebel against decorum. And decorum basically, in, in this case, being a set of cultural rules and practices that people live by, right? So we've mentioned in the synopses that this assassin, the world's greatest assassin, I, f- I forget her name in this story, but... <clears throat> Imogen? Uh, the Imogen, right. The, the assassin Imogen is someone who is very strict about the rules that she follows, the decorum that she follows, right? And how she holds herself and adheres to these rules. And the thing about it is, about this story, is what we really see where she departs from that is when she decides to take on what's what's the girl's name? Nan? Niha? Niha? Yeah. She she at that point she departs from what her standard procedure is and she decides to take this girl in and to teach her the ways of her assassin's guild and to bestow upon her all of this knowledge of again decorum and as we see the story progress we see that that one act of not following of of rebelling against it Mm -hmm. on emojin's part is sort of the domino that sets things in motion where it goes from her taking on niha and niha eventually joins this guild and she even though she eventually begins to get the rhythm of the guild and she begins to follow their rules to some degree when it really counts she ends yeah. up breaking those rules because she's kind of got that spirit of i guess rebelliousness right mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. she she isn't as stringent as Imogen is. And because of that rebelling against decorum, she ends up 
in, in brief, she ends up becoming she ends up becoming the protector for this space messiah god creature. Um, yeah, so it's it, for me, it's really the story of just Wait, protector. How I I don't I don't even know was she the protector or did she become the queen at the end of the story? Yeah, because he ends up being like. He still ends up being kind of the the god thing that he is, right? Yeah, that's true. It just seems like someone that powerful. Kind of strange to imagine him requiring a protector. Mm. Well, I didn't know what else to call her. Maybe like an emissary or something, oh. or a minister, or like I I don't. They didn't really give us an official title for what she was by the end of the story, except that she was part of his inner circle of, you know, his pantheon. I, I don't know. Well, in, in some sense I was thinking, and yeah, we're, we're definitely spoiling the ending of it now, but I was thinking because the way that the story ends with uh, the celestial Messiah ending the singularity, the church of the singularity, he is able to kind of establish a new civilization over their ashes right and then uh, those last few pages after the big fight is over uh he tells imogen that he's not the one who should reorganize the entire civilization that maybe it should be her and imogen is she's she's the one who passes it up she's like a late stage paragraph by someone my age heavens no it's unseemly so certainly not it should be someone young and idealistic, someone who has known loss and sacrifice, someone a little rough around the edges, but with the promise of so much more. And like she's saying all that while Niha is like just wrecking the heck out of the remains of the robot. Right, then, right. But yeah, and then they, they choose her to be the one who kind of becomes the the ruler so i, I think she is the ruler because like in that last okay, page okay. she's the one who's on the throne and then imogen yeah and and like these other people are standing next to her and then you got uh the celestial messiah sitting at the right hand of her throne um and you have what looks to be like these small little alien people coming up to petition niha she's also the only one who's in color in that scene too everybody else is black and white or shades of gray so i i think right, i right. the way i read that ending was that somehow some way she's the one who is now ruling this new society right right civilization yeah and right. i don't really know what that means it it's it ends with uh to be continued so <laughs> yeah, yeah and i don't know if they're making more or when they're going to come out with more. So I feel like, I feel like it's hard to really grade the story just based on what we have so far. It kind of feels like the first installment of a longer epic, you know? Mm -hmm. But yeah, but based on what you've described there, I do think if you, if you take the story at face value and you know, presume that because of Neha's unique perspective and outlook on the world, she is the one who is 
uniquely qualified to usher in this new world right that's that's what they're saying mm-hmm. um if you just take that ending on face value you can presume that she <laughs> you could tell yourself that she ushered in an age of peace and prosperity for all beings throughout the universe after that yeah right yeah it's a That's pretty true. optimistic way to interpret that ending but i do think what you were the the lines that you were reading out there just kind of reinforces what i was saying earlier right mm-hmm. where this whole time this cult really has a very specific idea of what their computer god is supposed to look like or what what this being is supposed to be in fact their entire purpose is to kill this guy right mhm yeah their their entire purpose for being is they've spent eons upon eons throwing themselves at the wall destroying a uh, countless number of their numbers just to try to kill this one guy and what she does is by breaking the rules by breaking decorum she ends up being the one that ushers in peace for all time in our age mm. in our era mm. so i do think you know not to be heavy-handed about it but i do think that is why the book is called decorum if i had to guess and that, that is, is why a- there is so much there that's why so much of the book is built around the idea of these rules these arbitrary rules of class and stature that we adhere to and what it means to you know buck that entire eons of culture and uh uh i guess not breeding but uh you know training or or uh breeding makes sense in this context breeding then yeah i don't know what do you think of that I think that makes a lot of sense. I think you've kind of unlocked something for me in helping me understand it a little bit better because I hadn't considered that. But now that you said it, the ending scene of the book, it makes a lot more poetic sense to me now because Imogen is sort of the embodiment of decorum throughout the story, right? She's the one who's very proper, very professional, unflappable. Mm -hmm. She's the one who seems to to know exactly exactly what to do all the time she doesn't make mistakes and she's yeah she's a clearly an assassin lady of very high breeding and knows how to take care of herself and and you know she's very proper and all that whereas during the conversation she has with the celestial messiah at the very end and she's you know talking about what this new civilization actually needs in the background while she's talking we have neha acting very um undignified shall we say yeah she's yeah. like a child no, perfect crowbar yeah she's like a child at the crowbar just going to town she's wrecking the exact opposite of decorum exactly exactly she's the opposite of decorum she's the opposite of poise she's not behaving in the way that you would expect someone with the stature of a savior of a civilization to behave right because we all assume i think man you've kind of unlocked something for me now but i think a lot of the times in a lot of science fiction and stories there's this presumption that 
the person that saves us is going to be this person that's are better in all the on all these ways right uh mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. whenever you have this messianic character they're they're usually a character that's kind of above it all almost saintly in their actions and their behavior and in their presentation and it's like you were saying they're just someone that's unflappable someone that just almost has all the answers and that's kind of what you we were set up to see in this computer god being that uh they were protecting this whole time and it's interesting just to, to get to the very end and to have that last page be neha sitting on the throne and mm-hmm. there's something about that image because like you said she's the only one in color while all these other people are surrounding her like her pantheon or whatever right and the interesting thing about that is even uh, for a story that ends with a to be continued just looking at this it doesn't really feel like there's anything too ominous there's this one burning spire in the background right but i think overall it's a pretty optimistic feeling ending that's why i felt comfortable saying like even if you took this as the ending i think there's a safe interpretation where you can look at it as oh she she becomes the queen of the universe and ushers in yeah this low class girl becomes the queen of the universe who ends up ushering in an era of peace and hope and prosperity throughout mm. the galaxy yeah yeah that's a good point that's a good point i i do think that even if we don't get any more decorum in the future i think this still works as a story in and of itself i think it it still works as a standalone kind of piece i think mm. i just see so much of the other things that they've set up in the book seem to point to more stories like it it feels like there are things that they haven't gotten to yet or even they've set up some things uh leading into uh a sequel story like one notable example uh, of a subplot that i noticed this is let me see the hardcover isn't consistent about page numbers it only really has page numbers at the end of at the during the chapter breaks but uh i believe it's right at the end of issue six there's a scene of neha walking through a city and someone is stalking her and it's the you know how earlier on in her in the story her first kill was that person who was taking advantage of her when she was a courier Mm-hmm. and and that person yeah. that she killed had like a lover basically and like this so this guy um her first killed lover is the one who's like now hunting her and you, you see like a scene of him sneaking around following her but then that's it we don't really see what he does the rest of the story and i think it, i think my assumption was that oh if they ever do a sequel maybe he will appear in that because that's kind of a strange thing to spend time on without really leading to anything resolving yeah 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 you make a good point i mean i think it's still very obvious that at the end of the day it ends with a to be continued so i i, I can only assume that he meant to do tell more more story 
Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. unfortunately, we have no way of knowing when or if he'll ever get back to it. <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. Because yeah. as far as I know, both of them are working on three worlds, three moons. And I I think I just assume that with all the Substack money that they could conceivably kind of work on whatever comic that they really wanted to. So if mm. Decorum wasn't actually, I don't know how well it sold. So I don't know if it was enough to motivate them into doing more of it. But for the sake of argument, let's just say that Decorum didn't sell as much as they were hoping. So mm. with the Substack money, you know, they could do anything they want, but they're doing something different. So it kind of makes me guess or assume that decorum is just on the back burner because they're working on a different thing. Yeah. I mean, and it's yeah. not to say that they'll never come back to decorum. Maybe at some point in the future, the time will be ripe and they'll do it, but I just don't know when that will be. So for now I have to treat this book as its own thing. I don't yeah, know when a volume two will come out. Probably all we're ever going to get. <laughs> we just have to live really long. If we live long enough, maybe we'll see the next installment. Yeah. Well, we could kidnap Jonathan Hickman and, <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, and like the thing him. is like with Hickman's uh, resume, like we've seen him do stories where, he kind of left them on cliffhangers and never really went back to them, right? I think so. I think he's got quite a few of those where he just told as much like, story as he felt comfortable with. And yeah, that was kind of it. I'm not even sure if I would say that he was done telling the story and or just comfortable with where he got to. I've, it kind of feels like some of it is just actually unfinished. Like I, I think of something like... uh the black monday murders mm. and the dying and the dead like those are the two that that come to mind and i don't know maybe maybe he has said something about them um and i just didn't see the interview but like those are the two comics i think of where it kind of feels like he and the artist just didn't get a chance to finish and of course like with the dying and the dead, like I kind of understand that because the artist did pass away, but I think mm. that was originally supposed to be like a much longer series, and even before Ryan Bodenheim passed, um, you know they they only probably got like halfway through it, from what I remember. They didn't yeah. actually finish it, yeah. and then yeah, the Black Monday murders with Tom Coker. Uh, I'm not really sure what's going on there because. Yeah, it's been a few years since that last issue of it came out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I'm just in a place where if they make more, they make more. If they don't, then I have nothing to go on except what I have. <laughs> yeah, if they don't make any more, I guess we'll save a little bit of money because we're not going to be buying something. Because if they make more... I'm definitely going to buy it just because they've suckered <laughs> right. me in. I'm not going to. Right. Yeah. We got love for Hickman. So, you know, spending money on his books is, is, is no vice. 
or is it a vice? Mm-hmm. I don't know, man. It's I don't I got no problem with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hmm. Did you have any other thoughts? Were there any other themes or ideas that jumped out at you? Things that you know you felt shaped the underlying meaning of this book? Um okay, here's one thing that I did like about the story. This was a thing that probably drew me in the most in terms of that kind of emotional interest. And I think it's it starts when Neha enters the Sisterhood of Man, which is a pretty funny name for an assassin school. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. Would you rather attend the Sisterhood of Man or King's Dominion, Albert? King's Dominion is pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I'm not even making it a a sexist thing. It's got nothing to do with the sisterhood portion of it. If it was a cool sounding sisterhood, I'd be all about it. But King's Dominion is just, man, that's clever. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't even know what King's Dominion has to do with assassins, but it just sounds cool. (laughs) It does. It really rolls off the tongue and it sounds regal and yeah. a little bit foreboding. It sounds regal, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, in Decorum, I think what I really got drawn into was the story of Neha and her experiences in the assassin school, especially when she's going through her training. Like, all the stuff that you see her go through, because it starts with, like, the span of years uh, occurs over, like, just... I guess that specific issue where you see her go through her training and it's kind of a growing process where you see like little scenes of her uh, learning anatomy so she can figure out like the best way to get to somebody's vital organs. You see her uh, trying to assemble weapons and you see her reading books and you see her sparring with her fellow classmates and each time uh, at least in year one, she's like sc- screwing up or just getting getting beat up on by the other girls. And then slowly and slowly, she just makes a little bit of improvement here and there uh, until by the time we get to the end of her training, she's capable of holding her own. And I, I just enjoyed that journey with her. I think... Mm. There was something about the repetition of those scenes where each year ends with kind of this test where she has to kill somebody. And for whatever reason, uh, Imogen doesn't really give her a hard time. She just like gives her a chance. And when she sees that Neha can't pull the trigger, then Imogen ends up doing it. And it's one of those character beats where I felt like I think based on a lot of other stories and comics I've read, it kind of felt like in many of those other cases, the mentor figure in that situation would be frustrated or even turn against the pupil. But that's not really the case here. Instead, it seems like Imogen is just really, really understanding of how Neha doesn't really have this cold heart. Yeah. Yeah. And then it just like keeps on building up, right? 
yeah, yeah, go yeah. ahead. No, no, no. I'm I'm engrossed in what you're about to say. Go for it. Yeah. So then, like, by the time uh, we get to the end of the story, I think in the back of my mind, I was still wondering if we were going to have that moment where where Imogen kind of turns on her pupil and, and rejects her because, like, all of the stuff that happens to the Sisterhood of Man when they fight the Singularity Church, like, the Sisterhood, it seems like most of them get wrecked pretty badly by all these robots. And, yeah, somehow uh, Imogen is still, like, a believer in Neha. And I, I think that's something that i wouldn't i don't know if it i would say i don't know if i would go so far as to say it moved me but i found it endearing it was something that i enjoyed seeing and it it made mm. both characters feel a little bit more wholesome even though we're reading this story where they're just killing defenseless people because you know they've got <laughs> contracts i mean we can all assume that they're all bad people <laughs> Yeah, that's true. I assumed they were yeah. terrible. I assumed everybody who got killed in this comic deserved it. Yeah, yeah. It's um we do have that moment later on in the book where when the I forget what is the name of this celestial being? Did did it even have a name? Shoot, I can't remember if he has an actual name. I I just call him the celestial messiah cuz I I know they referred to him at that as that at some point. Okay. So it made me think of when the celestial Madonna. What if he met Mantis? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mantis is the Madonna in all universes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that's the thing. So when this cult, this this you know singularity hive mind robot cult thing, when they decide to go after. Um, the celestial messiah what what they end up doing is they basically promise the 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 sisterhood a diamond the size of a moon or a planet or something right mm-hmm. and you know this is the this is so this is the moment in the story where the real test happens because emojin and um and what's her name again neha yeah. Um, well, yeah. This this is the point where Emojin straight up just tells her, "Oh, you're on your own. I'm doing my thing. You're doing your thing. This is no longer a, you know, master squire sort of situation. We're like whoever gets it gets it, right? Mm-hmm. And they both they all go their separate ways. And Neha goes out there, and again just through her sheer pluck and quirkiness. And I will say she is a pretty likable character, I guess, in that sense. She's she's like a, an assassin Pippi Longstocking or something, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but she stumbles. Alps, but a killer. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Just ever optimistic, but also a killer. Yeah, you know? A, a killer for hire. But she goes out there and she stumbles upon this celestial messiah. And even though she's been working towards getting the the riches that she's wanted and the acceptance of this sisterhood, 
the first thing she does is she turns against that by deciding to protect him she she decides to run off with the celestial messiah and i don't even remember if she had a plan beyond that but because of her running off the focus and the efforts of the entire sisterhood are aimed at her they they are alerted to her i guess betrayal if you're really going to call it that mm-hmm. I don't, it's it's kind of strong but sure let's call it a betrayal and they decide okay we gotta we're gonna go after neha and the stipulation for that is not only do they have to kill the messiah they have to kill her as well in order to prove that they weren't in on this and imogen ends up being the first one to well, i don't even remember if she was the first one maybe one of the first ones to no, well, all, the, all three of another... her, all three of her classmates come after her. Yeah, at some yeah. point, and she like manages to either defeat them or outwit them at every turn. Yeah, and then when you when Emojin gets there, yeah, then you're kind of yeah, it kind of primes you to expect you know, it's another one of those master versus student situations. Yeah, but. We don't end up getting that because Imogen ends up helping her, helping her, siding with her. Mm-hmm. And I think that just kind of goes to the idea of this young plucky girl who is just so endearing that she's able to, you know, melt the coldest hearts and get people to her side. And that is the quality that ultimately makes her the ideal candidate to be the queen of the universe. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. There's some pretty incredible artwork during that scene when I forget the name of the kind of cyborg girl who was in Neha's class, the the girl with the robotic arm and you know, she was the one who was always trying to beat up Neha, but towards the end of the adventure uh Neha's ship with the celestial messiah in it they crash land on some like asteroid or something or a small planetoid and then she and this cyborg girl have a a crazy fight and it looks like the cyborg girl is about to kill Neha but right before she pulls the trigger Imogen blows up her head (laughs) (laughs) and like yeah that whole sequence is incredible artwork like from the moment that they're in space to the crash landing to them getting out of the car i mean out of the spaceships and then fighting on the ground and then uh imogen showing up to save the day and then like learning that the celestial messiah healed from his wounds like the conversation after that like that whole sequence is mm, amazing artwork man so many different Mm styles blended into one cohesive sequence it's truly beautiful it's artful man yeah i see you sent me some images in the in the chat yeah i was just they i they were pictures that i thought were pretty impressive and it's like you were saying a lot of the artwork it's obvious that uh huddleston 
is just a massive talent because he's just able to draw in all these different styles. And the fact that he's cramming all of those different styles throughout this one book, just page after page of all these different uh, images done in different ways. Just, yeah, I, I wanted to take the opportunity now while we were discussing it to take those snapshots of those images so that we can post them mm. on the Instagram later. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah those are great. It's a lot of fun stuff too. I'm looking on at this one page, uh, page 194. And, you know, it's... <laughs> It's not a, a a very complicated page or anything like that. It's just a picture of this airship, but there's just something fun about this about that, you know, f- for for everyone's inner steampunk fan. <laughs> you know, this this giant hot air balloon with cannons sticking out of it. That's that's great. You know, I just eat that up. <laughs> yeah. You could tell that Huddleston put a whole lot into the work. Like, there's so much thought and uh, just process that goes behind creating a new design of something, and he he's just doing it like a few times every issue. You know, like things that that only show up for a couple of panels. Like, they look so complex and fully realized that you can't help but buy into them like for example one of the things that really uh jumped out to me is in chapter 20 there's a scene when neha and the celestial messiah are hiding out in some kind of warehouse and they're trying to repair a couple of mechs that they can use for their escape and those mechs just look awesome man (laughs) like yeah as a guy who's really into mechs and robots and that kind of mechanical design work i love those i just wish that we would see more of them because they're only on a couple in a couple panels but they uh serve they do serve a purpose in the story it's just very brief Mm -hmm. and like there was also another one uh i forget which page, but I was flipping through it and, and I saw it earlier where there's a, a smaller tank sized or a tank looking kind of mech that r- totally reminded me of a uh, touch coma from ghost in the shell. So I wonder if this guy watches anime or something, or if he reads manga, like that, if that's influenced his mechanical design sense at all. I bet he does. Yeah. Wouldn't surprise there's me. There's another, there's another funny little scene that I'm looking at here where Emojin is talking with her mentor on page, like, I think we're on page 79, 76. And I don't know if it's just me, but the mentor sort of looks like King Charles. <laughs> oh, yeah. Prince Charles. yeah. I don't know what you'd call him uh, at this point, but I thought that was kind of funny. I noticed that, too. It was pretty funny. It's like yeah. such yeah. A, a realistic likeness, right? And it Again, it goes back yeah. to how Huddleston draws in these different styles because that whole scene is, I mean, there's a little bit of color, but it it just looks like classy black and white for the most part with some gray tones. Mm-hmm. And the the rendering on this guy's face is just so realistic. He looks almost like 
a Neil Adams drawing or something. Yeah, yeah. And then if you just flip a couple pages before that, like to- towards the the end of chapter four, you have these pages that take place in the cosmos with the Kirby crackles everywhere. Yeah, like that's that's yeah. totally like a Jack Kirby sort of flourish. Right. I was talking about those pages a little earlier uh, in the, the episode, but if you jump a little before that to page, hold on, like 68, 69, that was the stuff that I was talking about that sort of reminded me of something like Jock, where mm. it's just really such heavy sh- uh, shadowing and shades. Yeah, yeah, the stuff he does with... The stuff both of those artists do with black and white is pretty striking. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting that this alien species, this alien cult is just made up. I mean, I guess now is an appropriate time to talk about them, but they're pretty indistinct in how they look because they're just robots, right? So mm-hmm. it's not like they have facial features or a lot of details, but yet he still takes this design and makes it really interesting to look at and it's not boring at all something that would otherwise just be an outline in the shape of a humanoid man yeah a generic humanoid man figure right something Mm -hmm. that could very easily just come out looking like a blackened out cutout of someone's shadow or something like that yeah it's almost like making them so relatively indistinct kind of makes them a little bit more fearsome because now we're just sort of projecting our own image on them like they're they're humanoid enough to have character but Mm -hmm. also blank enough for us to kind of imagine just the the darkness within them because so much of the story revolves around how powerful they are how they've overtaken everything and you know they're coming for you next because it's the singularity right 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 and you know another you know along that same line another thing that caught my attention is the way that their ship is drawn to or their the various ships or shuttles that they use because mm-hmm. there is real no distinct shape to this to the way that their vessels are drawn uh a lot of the times they just kind of look like crumpled up garbage or something just flying through space yeah it's just uh pretty interesting kind of reminds me of uh a bunch of polygons just kind of mashed up together yeah it it again just goes back to the idea that even though they're doing all this world building, there are certain elements of it that are just meant to be so alien to us and so foreign to us that you know why why shouldn't that be the case, right? I think a lot of the times with science fiction, we're accustomed to a lot of Star Trek, Star Wars, where there's something in the aliens that we look at that we can kind of recognize in people because that's the thing that makes sense to us. 
and well, I guess <laughs> I guess this is a moment where I can veer off into tangents slash soapbox territory a little bit, but okay, okay. <laughs> uh, like it it sort of makes me think about how recently I think Starhenge came out, and that's that's the game, right? Starhenge. What's that? Starfield or is it oh Starfield Star Starfield yeah Starfield came out that was like the really big game that just recently came out right yeah from Bethesda and, yeah and the thing about it is there were people that were upset because when you're designing your character you know you can you can have your um, pronouns be like he she or like they right but there's something funny about that because in a world where you have like aliens and stuff. <laughs> I, I I feel like that would make even more sense, right? Because <laughs> who's to say that if you encountered an alien race, that any of this would make would would be applicable? Uh, I don't mm -hmm. know. Maybe that's just me. <laughs> but um, yeah, like I, I I feel like that's the thing that's going on here is when you look at these aliens. There's, again, like you said, there's something familiar there, but there's also, in large part, something very unfamiliar and very alien about it. And I think that's very appropriate for what Hickman and Huddleston are trying to convey about them. Yeah. I don't know. That's just me. Yeah, I think it fits with a lot of the stuff that they did in this series because a lot of it, a lot of things in the comic are sort of left to our imaginations. I feel like they do so much to introduce ideas, concepts, designs, just bits of information, whether it's in a background of a page or it's a, you know, one of the data sheets that gives us some history of something you know all of those things like there's just so much of it that it's not all essential to understanding the plot but i think mm. a lot of that is essential to the experience of the comic mm -hmm. yeah because i think this comic i think decorum as a singular piece of work probably has more to say about the craft of world building than maybe like some kind of moral message or anything like that you know like that's at least that's the sense yeah. i get like i feel like if somebody smarter than me could kind of pull out some of the things that they saw and and like explain them to me i could probably see those things in the comic because I, I don't think it's shallow or anything i just think that the main thing my main takeaway from it is the fact that it's got like this really fully realized world it, it feels like hickman probably has a notebook filled with notes about every planet and every planet's history and all these different things that will never really see the light of day but just shows you like how real the world feels because as you read the story at least i felt like 
it was a real universe, you know, like they pulled me into the world. It was immersive. And I think, I think they really succeeded at creating an immersive world, even if it was a world that we could only see to a limited extent. But, mm. you know, I, I think that's okay too. Like that's a different style of storytelling. Like some people prefer a science fiction story that is really focused on a specific situation or even specific characters. And that's definitely very effective too. Um, it's just different, yeah, you know. It's, yeah. it's like, what are yeah. what are what are you as the creator trying to accomplish? And I think, yeah, Pikmin and Huddleston were, and Wooten and Sasha Ehad were. They were just trying to create something that was more epic in scale and scope, you know. And like, in order to create a massive universe, takes a lot of work and imagination and you know, all of the design elements, all of the lettering, the different um, styles of speech balloons, uh, word balloons and everything, like all of that stuff adds to the feeling of a big world filled, populated with numerous different actors. So mm. uh, it's it's not necessarily a story that has to feel tight knit, even though I, I do think towards the end we get a bit of that it's with uh neha's adventure after she finishes her assassin training but yeah i feel like the bulk of the story is probably going to be more memorable to me for the immersive world that they've created yeah 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 you're right i i just feel like as long as they're purposeful and intentional about what they do and why they do it and if it's interesting and innovative how it's presented to us there's a lot of things that i can buy into when those when they are um like i said purposeful mm -hmm. and innovative right i think there's a lot of stuff that's generic that tends to skip a lot of these steps and just throw a lot of jargon at you and tell you it's world building, but mm. they're nowhere near as creative as the talent pool here is. And they expect to get, they expect to get waived for it because what's the difference? I'm doing it too. Right. But I, I'm just doing the same thing he did, but, yeah, you know, it, it's apples and oranges. <laughs> you you don't get to do that. Like Hickman can do that. You you don't because who are you, <laughs> right? Um, but yeah, I I I think I think that's the thing that we forget a lot of the times is a lot of people produce stuff. There's a lot of people that even make it into mainstream comics, and they get a lot of defense of what it is they do because, hey, he's just, Jed McKay is just doing his version of that. <laughs> and I, I don't think that's the case. No, like the, when I think of stories that we want to write or the stories that we play around with in our head, there's, there's an obvious kind of world building that we're all accustomed to doing i think at this point we've been exposed to so much science fiction that everyone does some version of star wars or star trek 
where that's their idea of world building. And that isn't to say that someone doing their version of Star Wars and Star Trek automatically makes me roll my eyes and go, oh, I've seen this already before. I'm uninterested in what they're doing. That's, I think, in a large majority of cases, that's kind of the case. But I also am not excluding making that the exclusive uh, line of demarcation where I dismiss a story either, right? I, I mm-hmm. think I can look at a story and understand, okay, I understand what they're doing in terms of the world building, which is they're just throwing a lot of details at us. And that's fine, right? But it's what you do with that at the end of the day. And yeah. if all you're doing is just throwing junk at us because you feel like the more you throw at us, the more quote unquote flushed out it feels. I don't agree with that. I think it it all really ends up being about all these ideas that you do have. When you take them and put them all together and decide to present them in the form of a comic, what does that final product look like? And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if you're just again a run of the mill Jed McKay or a Rosenberg or something, then uh, you can keep it. <laughs> I don't I'm I'm very not interested in that. So uh yeah, there we go. Yeah, and I also think that there's uh kind of a balance too um in what you said cuz I feel like people do say that people do have that criticism about Hickman's comics that he he throws a lot of junk that doesn't matter, you know? And like, there are people who roll their eyes when they see one of his data pages, people who don't like the fact that a comic has a page that doesn't have any pictures, only words and design elements. So like on some level, it could just be a matter of preference and and what the reader wants out of a comic. But on the other hand, I do think Hickman is a good writer and I vibe with his sense of integrating mm. his design pages and his data pages into his story. And like they, they do add quite a bit to his comics yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, I, I agree. It's not just all the details. It's, it's, it's the presentation and, and the effort and the creativity of it all. So yeah. I'm about it. And he's somebody I think consistently excels at world building because even when he was writing his Marvel stuff, right, the things that the concepts that he would create at Marvel tended to be above and beyond what a lot of other Marvel writers or Marvel and DC writers had come up with, you know, generally speaking, compared to like the average guy. Going back to something like his Secret Warriors. He came up with a pretty complex plot, but using those data pages and info sh- sheets, that actually did help clarify a lot of the things that he was writing about. And mm. yeah, you could probably skip those while reading the comic, but I, th- I think someone who did that would be missing out on a whole lot. Um, and like, it just really created, it all added to this feeling of, Hickman creating a fully realized espionage super world, you know, like 
they had they had super science with all the superheroes and then they had all the super spy stuff with all the shield and hydra things going on and the layers upon layers the the wheels within wheels the machines within the machines like all of that stuff was pretty complex compared to your typical nick fury comic so i think he was able to use all of the elements that he's known for now to really develop and successfully flesh out the world that he was working with in that comic. That was his Marvel universe in secret warriors. And it made it feel like a paranoid, uh, place to be, you know, like you would, if you were Nick Fury in there, you would be like, who, who can you trust? And it's, it's almost, uh, yeah, I would say it is, similar to something like decorum where he builds immersion through all the details that he crafts same thing with his avengers like all of the stuff that he was writing in avengers and new avengers there's a lot of details and it gets kind of complicated and you know things get thrown on top of each other you have all of the things that he started with um in avengers where that first story arc when they go to they go to Mars and they, they meet ex Nihilo. And then like the stuff that happens in new Avengers when they, I forget all the names of the different, uh, actors, but you know, there's like the makers and, and all these other, uh, assistants and things like that. Like all of the, all these different, uh, titles for different, um, characters in the story you know it sounds complex but as you're reading it you just find yourself caught up in the fact that he's built so much into it you know like he really did think a whole lot about his stories and i think that makes it more appealing to me because i i do appreciate that level of commitment and that level of craft it's not just you know some throwaway thing it's something that he actually took a lot of time to think about and plot out and figure out how it would fit into his story same goes with his x-men stuff at least with house of x powers of 10 like when you read that there's a lot of stuff in there that like slowly gets unveiled through his data sheets his data pages and you kind of figure it out as you're reading but once you get to the end it it feels pretty satisfying and there's a lot of uh information being presented but there's also a good amount of character moments too so you get like that good mix of world building and character driven storytelling mm, mm, mm. all right well you got anything else or any other thoughts i guess my one final question and it's okay if you don't really have an answer, but just to get it down on the record, I'm wondering. Okay. I'm wondering what you have to say about this. What does decorum have to say about our lives? Does about it have our anything lives? to say about our lives? Yeah. Is it? Does it have any kind of like social relevance, or is is this purely like an adventurous space opera with? science fiction elements huh that's a pretty heavy question 
for for a pitch to the close <laughs> to, to the closing i gotta save my best material for the end dude it's, it's a reward for all the people who actually stick around and listen to us this long <laughs> i mean jeez. back to what i was saying earlier if i okay i think in terms of how i choose to read it it's probably more of just a space opera to me. But mm-hmm. if you were to ask me to extrapolate greater meaning from it, I would probably say that it'd be the idea that a lot of the a lot of the I guess norms and beliefs that we are accustomed to living with these things that are that we believe are the life's blood of society that keeps it going these things that we are that we you know look at as sacred because if any of these things were to change <laughs> uh we would be throwing hundreds of years thousands of years of tradition out the window and that would be the downfall of society right um i would say that i i i want to say that i believe that this is hickman's statement to the opposite of that right where Mm, it's the idea that if you continue to live your life dogmatically you don't you're not necessarily opening up yourself to the possibility of you know real lasting change that can have measurable effects on your life um that's just a guess on my part i i don't know if that's what he meant to say i don't know if <sighs> yeah yeah I, I like that's only what i can surmise based on the various ideas that i got rolling around in my head uh trying to make sense of the greater meaning of this book if there is one that's deep though i like it i think it does make sense i think that is i don't know if he ever talked about what he wanted the story to say but i think that is something that we can that we can ex- extrapolate from the text, especially through Neha's journey and like all the things that, especially through her relationship with, with Imogen as well. I think what you were saying about how future generations need to be able to uh, not be so rigid in into sticking to the uh, established decorum but actually being able to go against it in some way like that's the kind of thing that will uh drive our capacity for change is to not be so ingrained in our ways that we close our minds off to new ideas and new things yeah i think that makes sense mm-hmm. i can see that in the text yeah, we've come quite a long way because uh, when we started this episode, 
I don't think either of us really had an idea. We we were <laughs> grasping for meaning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The listeners have just witnessed our own journey into wrestling with a comic book that we didn't fully understand. Maybe we still don't understand yeah. it, but now at least we can yeah. pretend that we got something out of it. <laughs> exactly. If we had to write an It'd English paper about this, we'd be capable. <laughs> It'd be interesting to find out that we were just completely off the mark. <laughs> yeah, it'd be funny if Hickman or somebody listened to this and he was like, man, those guys are idiots. They totally missed the point. They got it all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> this is a book that is all about conformity. <laughs> we need more this, conformity in our life. <laughs> the fact that the singularity was defeated was meant to be a tragedy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> These fools! <laughs> How did they not get it? <laughs> oh man, too funny, too funny. All right, well, I guess if there's nothing else, um, yeah. If anyone, if any of you out there listening have any thoughts or ideas, you know, if you want to correct us, tell us what's up. Tell us why we're wrong. Tell us why we're right. Feel free to hit us up at between the gutters podcast at gmail.com or DM us on our Instagram at between the gutters or X at us or thread at us, whatever. We're willing to listen to anyone that's willing to reach out to us the same way we're willing to sponsor anyone. That's why this week's sponsor is the Black Death. <laughs> Uh, oh, did you have any recommendations for this episode? Oh, uh, shoot. Put some stuff out there because uh, I, I got to think on it a little bit. It's I don't know that I have anything. The, the only things that I can think of are the other Hickman books that are out there. That's probably the thing that makes the most sense. Do you so, have a particular Hickman book that stands out above the rest that you'd want to highlight? Oh, shoot. Is it his Avengers comics? Well, I mean, he's doing some other like grand space opera type of stuff, isn't he? But I just I haven't read those yet, so I can't really recommend them. I don't know. I, well, I've gone and recommended other things in the past where that I haven't read, but yeah. <laughs> Fine. Of the things I've I've read, uh, his Fantastic Four is another high concept science fiction comic, so. There we go. His his fantastic forerun by John. No, so you, you did finish reading it. No, I didn't. But oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I felt more comfortable recommending that than you know one of his more indie stuff that I haven't read. At least I can kind of fake my way around knowing <laughs> what the fa- what happened in the Fantastic Four. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's fair, man. That's fair. You got any recommendations? Uh, I mean, when it comes to Hickman, I kind of do like his Marvel stuff. I mean, I I definitely have my blind spots because I haven't read all of his creator-owned stuff. I think the biggest thing that I really, really want to read is East of West. Hmm. So, yeah, I'll, I'll recommend that so I can listen to this recording at some point and be like, oh, yeah, I remember that time I recommended East of West. I should go read that because I haven't read it yet. <laughs> 
Well, okay. Now that we're talking about it and my brain is shaking things loose, I get I there is something that I did read that I could recommend. Uh something that's equal as much of, of a visual feast for the eyes. It is Odyssey. That's spelled O-D-Y hyphen C. And that's by Christian Ward and Matt Fraction. Um, that's a comic that is a science science fiction futuristic gender bent retelling of the odyssey Mm. so that's something with a lot of really neat art and it made me think of it because there are some pages in here in decorum that i was looking at where the coloring does kind of remind me of christian ward's art so i thought that was that was something that reminded me of that and that's a book that's i think pretty wordy pretty heavy on world building as well Mm -hmm. but i guess the only difference is that in terms of their world building is more established because it's telling a story that's based off an existing mythology so mythology and world building kind of go hand in hand and it's a big part of what odyssey is about is Mm. the power of stories so that's what i can recommend odyssey o-d-y hyphen c by matt fraction and christian ward nice and that's a and that's another comic that never got a ending because it's supposed to be there was supposed to be a third volume of it that just it's it's on hiatus but we don't know if it ever is going to get an end yeah that kind of hurts yeah but to be fair if you read the individual stories on their own uh cuz the issues that you do that i uh, that are out they they tell i think three different stories in in chunks so okay. on their own you can just read those as their own stories but you don't get the conclusion mm. yeah yeah I think for another recommendation for my Mike Huddleston recommendation, I would go with Butcher Baker, the Righteous Maker. That's the comic written by Joe Casey. I mentioned earlier in this episode, I'll just read the blurb summary from the image comics website to give uh, the listener a brief rundown of what this is about. The superheroic perversion of the new century. Butcher Baker was the preeminent all-American superhero. Now he's getting laid a lot. But one last mission could signal his return to glory. And now he's back on the blacktop. It's a balls-out, pimp-slapping, surreal super epic from the twisted minds of Casey and Huddleston. How's that sound to you, Albert? I have no idea what you described, but (laughs) (laughs) I'm on board. I am on board. It is Uh. a fever dream. (laughs) And then the other thing I would recommend, this is a really different book, but I was going to recommend Nexus by Mike Barron and Steve Rude. Nexus is a classic comic from the 80s, although it's still going on today, not quite on a monthly basis or anything, but if you uh, check out Steve Rude's Kickstarter, he's still doing Nexus stories. Um, 
on his own. And interestingly enough, Mike Barron, the co-creator of Nexus, he's also doing his own Nexus stories, but he's doing them apart from Steve Rude. So, yeah, I don't really know if we've ever had a situation like that before where the two co-creators of a single character ended up splitting up, but, you know, still sharing the property like that. It's, it's unusual. Weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Mike Barron is pretty weird now if you uh, go online and, and look at the crowd that he hangs out with. But yeah. Yeah, but I, I will say that the original stuff from the 80s was awesome. I really liked it. It's Nexus is a space opera kind of science fiction story, so it, it leans more heavily into the space opera element, I would say. But back then, Mike Barron was also just throwing a bunch of ideas at you rapid fire. And I think um, maybe it's not quite as intense or as confusing as something like a Hickman comic, not quite as complex or complicated, but with Nexus, I do think that was a comic that explored a ton of different ideas from a story-by-story basis. Heck, even within like the same issues, I, I would say that there were pretty large smatterings of different ideas thrown in there. Um, and Nexus is... He's basically a superhero in space. Like The idea of him is that he is endowed with fusion casting which is like a way to shoot energy blasts from his body but an alien a really powerful alien being gives him this ability but also kind of curses him with the dreams of seeing mass murderers so now it's nexus's job to receive these dreams of these mass murderers and he has to use his powers to to execute them that's his whole shtick is to kill killers. <laughs> I can get on board with that. <laughs> if anyone <laughs> needs killing, it's killers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and I'm pretty sure there's they're usually mass murderers too, so it's uh it's pretty intense stuff at times. Like it, it definitely explores a lot of different elements of what that whole job would entail and it, it's not it, it's not really just story after story of him going after killers over and over i think there's quite a bit more that would complexity. get repetitive yeah yeah as the story uh, evolves it definitely becomes a lot more than than what the original premise is but yeah it's, it's something i enjoy quite a bit definitely high up there in terms of my favorite 80s comics and steve rude to this day is still one of my favorite comic book artists i love his work it's super smooth like a real beautiful mix between alex toth jack kirby and like a john buscema maybe but yeah i love his work man and uh yeah check it out i didn't really get into nexus until like 20 years ago so i was like pretty slow on the uptake but ever since i did get into nexus i've been like going back and like collecting all of it so i, I do have like a full run of the old nexus and I, I think i've got like pretty much all of all of it other than like the modern mike baron solo stuff because i wasn't super interested in that right right he is a terrific artist and I do remember when you 
backed his Kickstarter. Steve comic, Rude. The coming of Steve Rude's comic, the coming of Gormando. Yeah. That was that was a pretty hefty, impressive, you know, giant sized tome of a book. Yeah, it's pretty much the biggest thing I own. Uh the biggest comic I own. Dang. Nice. Yeah. Well, if you have anything to contribute to the conversation, by all means hit us up at between the gutters podcast at gmail.com or you can DM us on Instagram at between the gutters. You can X at us or you can thread at us, whatever. If uh if you're listening to us, by all means please give us a high rating on whatever platform you're listening to us on and uh do all that stuff that share, like, subscribe, all that good stuff, because we want more people to hear us. Mm-hmm. What are we going to be talking about next episode, Albert? What's going on? Next week, we are we are finally jumping into our top 25 DC comics of all time, starting with number 25. 25, baby. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we've been we've been teasing this for the longest time. So I'm sure that all of the those of you who are listening are probably teased out. And uh, that that nerve has been rubbed raw. So, you know, now it's time for us to finally collect. It's time for you to finally collect on it. Uh, here we are. <laughs> yep. Finally starting our DC Top 25 countdown properly. Not an honorable mention. Not a dishonorable mention. Not a hoax. Not a dream. Not an imaginary story. Next week. This is the real deal. It's the real deal, baby. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. Peace. Take care. Bye.